Hello and welcome to another episode of the County Cricket Podcast in association with our friends at Bear Crickets. I'm your host, Aaron, aka the Cricket Connoisseur, and joining me on my left for today's special episode of TCCP is none other than former Derbyshire and Northamptonshire seam bowler, Ben Cotton. So Ben, first things first, mate, thank you ever so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast today for a chat about all things county cricket. I've got to ask, mate, how's your day been so far? Um, my day's not been too bad. A day off work, and I've got two days to use off before Christmas. So, but yesterday and today off, so nice to get a long line. Certainly is, and yeah, it's approaching <clears throat> Christmas as well, isn't it? When we're recording this on the the nineteenth of December, goodness yeah. me, it's <laughs> it's come by pretty quickly, hasn't it? It has indeed. It's caught me by surprise. So, some last minute Christmas shopping this morning. Well, I was going to ask that because I finished mine yesterday. <laughs> I've been pretty late when it comes to Christmas shopping. Thankfully, got it all sorted. But have you got any more presents to get? Anything to to buy at the last minute? Um, no, I've got all the main presents. It's all the like little bits that bulk it out a little bit and make it um, make it seem a little bit more expensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found that to be honest. I mean, yeah. the one which always gets me is gift cards and and vouchers. You know, if you ever get them for like Waterstones or WH Smith, something like that. They're the ones which always bulk it up for, for my Christmas shop. But yeah, goodness me, it, it's incredible, isn't it, really, that it's come by so quickly. And then after Christmas, of course, it's the countdown to the county season. So yeah, life is going by very quickly. But instead of talking about Christmas then, why don't we shift our focus to the wonderful world of county cricket and, of course, your cricketing story. So before we get into the chat about your time with the likes of North Ants and Derbyshire, why don't we take it all the way back to the origins of the Ben Cotton cricketing story? So what were your first ever memories of cricket, either playing or watching this simply sensational game? Uh, first ever memories are, are quite vague, to be fair. I just used to get left at the cricket club um, while my dad played. Um, so we'd play all kinds of games. You'd be in the school field playing, you'd be in the nets, doing whatever. Um so, yeah, just being left at the cricket club literally every Saturday, travel with my dad, he'd give me a fiver, and then you'd see him once the game had finished. That was about it. But both granddads played cricket. My dad was captain at the club that I still play at now uh, for probably 10 years, I think. Um, so it was inevitable that that was going to be the sport that I played, really. Yeah, it certainly sounds like it. Very much a, a family influence then in terms of those formative years in this game. And talking of that local club, just for those who don't know your journey in club cricket, what is that club, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, it's Portal Park Cricket Club in Staffordshire. Yeah, nice club, isn't it? In the South Cheshire League, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, the North Staff South Cheshire League, yeah. So we've gone a nice, nice purple patch in the last few years. So it's been quite a nice journey. Yeah, it certainly sounds like it. And I always think it's very special, isn't it, when you can have that family influence. And in your case, you had it with both your dads and, of course, your granddads as well. So that really is a lovely starting point into this sport. And aside from family influences in those most formative years, Ben, did you have any idols, any icons, any influences in the in the wider game itself, either at domestic or indeed international level, who you tried to emulate in those early years, per se? Uh, I remember growing up and watching test cricket and I didn't really enjoy cricket as much um, till the 2005 Ashes, but before that I remember watching um, the likes of you had Goff, 
uh, Caddick, Harmison was just coming in. Uh, and I used to really enjoy watching Andrew Caddick bowl. It's po he's probably not the person that everyone would pick. But obviously, he was quite tall. I used to see him at a bat, swing it, and a little bit like what I did. And then the 2005 Ashes come, and he just got kibosh, and it was obviously the one and only Freddie Flintoff after that, really. Well, some excellent choices there, Runs. Yeah, Andy Caddick, a very, very underrated international bowler. And whenever anybody mentioned his name, I just think of that spell against the West Indies. That was special, wasn't it, to be honest? I mean, yeah. goodness me, on his day, Andy Caddick really was a fine bowler. And you mentioned the 2005 Ashes, Ben. I've been saying this for about three or four years now. We should rebrand the podcast, really, to the 2005 yeah. Ashes podcast. It comes up pretty much every single episode. But I just love talking about it. It never gets old, to be honest. So if you could go back in time and relive just one day from that most iconic of series between England and Australia, which day would you choose and why? Um, well, I queued up outside Old Trafford on the last day and got turned away. So maybe actually getting into that game would have been would have been a start. Um, I mean, if you could single it down to the over, it'd have to be the Flintoff over. Imagine if you could stand at slip. Well, you probably wouldn't have liked to have that over because it would have been shaking a little bit. But just that over, the atmosphere was... I don't think you'll ever see that in cricket again. Maybe you will. I don't know. Well, that over was something something different, wasn't it? it's, I can't really explain it. It gives me a little bit of goosebumps now, but he literally had the bit between his teeth that over and it was special to watch. It really was. And to be honest, that entire test match, that edge baston was special, wasn't it? Let's face it, in yeah, particular, it was. that spell to Ricky Ponting. I mean, it is just one of the great spells in the history of this game. And it is one which, whenever it comes up on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, whatever, you just have to watch it. it doesn't matter how many yeah. times you've watched it before. You've got to just click on that and give it the attention and the love that it deserves because it is one of the greatest spells in fast bowling history. And yeah, in terms of that, that Old Trafford test, what was the the story behind that then in terms of the day and the fact that you couldn't get the tickets? Because for, for those who haven't seen it, there were massive queues, weren't there, outside Old Trafford on that final day. I mean, you could see it on the news. They had the helicopter going over and it was thousands of people queuing for that test match. And unfortunately, they did have to turn a lot of people away. So in terms of the story behind that day, Ben, what can you remember about that particular day, at least trying to get into Old Trafford? Uh, I remember leaving the house and my mum had made a massive packed lunch because there was there's four of us going, so we got this big cool box, like cool bag, and we were queued up. We parked up, we queued up, and we turned the corner, and the queue was even round that corner. And then you got round that corner, and the queue was around that corner. And we we're like, well, this is this is going to be a long day. And then news kind of filtered through that they were stopping. And my dad had the idea, right, we'll go back, we'll, we'll play golf and watch the last session on on the TV when you could watch it on on normal TV, I'd say then. Um, and that's exactly what we did. And unfortunately, it didn't get across the line, but another great test match. It certainly was. It was it was a draw, wasn't it, in the end? It was Brett Lee. It was nine down. Nine yeah, down, with the heroics yeah. for Australia in the end. And to be honest, it is a turning point in the series, though, because... When you think of the dominance that Australia had exhibited over the course of the 1990s, no one could ever imagine them celebrating a draw like that against England. And I think in terms of the, the psychological aspects of the series, 
you could argue that's where England probably gained the upper hands. And yes, we all know what happens as the series progressed in particular. Trent Bridge, Gary Pratt with the heroic run out of Ricky Ponting and then the Oval Test, yet another draw, but a fascinating game of cricket and a wonderful series, one which has created an entire generation of cricketers here in England and Wales. And Ben, you mentioned those those idols, those influences in those early years with the likes of Caddick, Harmison, Goff, and of course, Freddie Flintoff. Did you always set your sights on becoming a seam bowler? Or did you ever have plans to, I don't know, become a batter or a keeper or a spinner? In your heart and in your mind, was Ben Cotton always going to become a seam bowler? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously being as tall as I am, you, you, everyone says, oh, you play cricket, well, you must be a bowler. And nine times out of ten, that happens, doesn't it? So, yeah, I mean, I wish I could have batted a little bit better when I played in the county circuit. Um, but yeah, it was always going to be a seam bowler, to be honest. Fair enough. And yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because obviously in the English cricket discussion at the moment, there's a lot of talk about high release points and that's what we're selecting players on. So height definitely does have a big factor in terms of your success as a same bowler. And in terms of the art form itself, I always love asking this to same bowlers, but what was it about the discipline itself which almost captured your imagination? Why did you want to become a same bowler in the first place? Um, it's a very good question. It's hard to pinpoint, really. Um, I just, when I was watching my dad play, you'd watch the game and I was always lured to watching the bowlers more than the batters. And I'd, I couldn't tell you why. Um, I think it might be a bit of a cop-out, but you get more chances as a bowler. You bowl one bad ball, it goes for four or six, or you could even get a wicket off it. You play one full shot, there's a good chance you're going to get out. So um, there's nothing better than watching an opening bowler bowl and have it talking. I think that's better than watching a batter whack it around the park for me personally. Well, that's an interesting answer then, because a lot of people on this podcast <clears throat> obviously like the, the batting element of things and you know seeing people like Chris Gale in the past just going out and whacking it all over the place. So... It's an interesting mindset and approach to how to the game of cricket. And in terms of seam bowling itself, what do you say is your favourite type of delivery? Because you mentioned there about getting the ball talking. So you've got your in-swingers, you've got your out-swingers, you've got the nit-backers off the seam as well. You've got bouncers, yorkers, slower balls, cutters. There's an awful lot to the art form itself which can get you on top in a game of cricket. So in, in terms of those specific deliveries, what do you say is your favourite? Oh, there's nothing better than an outswinger that gets nicked to first slip. But I really enjoy bowling Yorkers at the end. And most people, when they play T20, they go, you're mad if you want to bowl at the end. But that's the reward, isn't it? If you bowl a good over at the end of a T20, that's better than going for six in the middle overs. If you're bowling a Yorker and crunching someone on the toe or knocking the leg stump out, for me, in short format, is one of the best sites. But there is also nothing better than nicking someone off to slip. Well, yeah, both are fantastic dismissals, aren't they? And in particular, the outswinger, that's very much a, a quintessential English dismissal, isn't it? With the same conditions that we do get and the extra swing that we get here in the UK. I mean, it's just classic. You think of Jimmy Anderson, for example, Darren Stevens, 
in recent years as well, swinging the ball all over the place. It is just a sight to behold. And in terms of death bowling, actually, just to touch upon that before we talk a bit more about county cricket, Ben, why did you like death bowling? Because, again, that's a very interesting answer. Because for a lot of bowlers, they might like to bowl first up or even be first change, for example. So once they've got the field set out a bit more defensively in a T20, why in particular did you like bowling at the death? Um, mainly because you could influence the game um, and you could kind of take the game and grab hold of it and you bowl a good last over, you can allow the team to win or, you know, if, if they need 12 off the over and you go for 10, you've essentially, although there's been 19 other overs, that over has won the game. Um, I remember when we were training Graham Welch, um, who's now bowling coach at Hampshire, I believe, uh, we always used to play Yorker golf. I did really well at it, and from there it, it kind of it kicked on. And uh, Luke Fletcher used to do it a lot for knots. He just used to run in a ball six Yorkers, and that's it's a little bit what I used to do as well. Well, that is absolutely fascinating. And <clears throat> just for those who don't know what Yorker golf actually is, can you just explain what that is and how it does improve you <laughs> as a fast bowler? Um, so you'd have a little target for a Yorker. If you hit the rim of the target, you'd uh, you'd be like a, it'd be a birdie. If it went through the target, it'd be an eagle. And then if you just hit the stumps, it'd be a par. And then your misses would be bogey, double bogey, and so on, and so forth. So a bit, a little bit of competition to make you better. Yeah, it's a good drill, isn't it? That goodness me, and it combines both sports, which a lot of cricketers absolutely adore, and in fact, a sport which we'll probably touch upon in a bit more detail as the as the <laughs> podcast progresses and we talk about your job in the world of of greenkeeping. But in terms of that initial foray into county cricket, then I think that's a lovely place to pick up our conversation first and foremost about Derbyshire County Cricket Club. So, Ben, how did you go from those early days playing at your local village club? To, to representing the Falcons of Derbyshire County Cricket Club. How did that opportunity first materialise, per se? Um, so I played all the age groups uh, for Staffordshire from 10s to 17s. Um, and then when I got to about 15, I started playing the age group above as well. And then one day I, got, um, I was on the staff's EPP, uh, the Emerging Players Programme, uh, one day, my dad got a call from Carl Cricken, who was academy coach at Derby at the time. And I got um, a phone call to go and play a game for the academy. And from there, never really looked back. Um, did well. I think the game was against Yorkshire. Uh, I can't remember what went on, but I did quite well. And the next game was actually against the... Um, North Staff South Cheshire League side. So I was basically playing against the lads that I would normally play against on a Saturday. Um, so I played for Derby Academy versus them and did well again. And yeah, got onto the academy full time after those trials and signed a contract a couple of years later. Well, again, it's a lovely route, isn't it? Into that first foray into county cricket. And in terms of your first impressions of Derbyshire as a club, what did you make of the East Midlands outfit? Because in terms of the facilities and, of course, the ground itself, very different to Port Hill Park and, of course, the stuff which you would have experienced 
for Staffordshire. So what were your initial impressions of the East Midlands outfit? It was a little bit overwhelming. Um, you go from turning up at a local sports hall for winter nets and there's about three lights out. It's nearly dark. There's holes in the nets and you turn up and you've got this massive ground because uh, Derby's quite a big open ground. So it's not massive in terms of the stand, but uh, it's quite open. So it also makes it a little bit cold early season. Um, but it was real overwhelming. You know, there's people walking around in, in kit and you feel a little bit out of place when you first turn up there and then you gradually get your feet in and a little bit more comfortable and, and then it starts to become a bit more of your home. Oh yeah, it does. Obviously it takes time. It's like with any workplace, isn't it? To be honest, initially you are a little bit overwhelmed and can be intimidating at times. Obviously, if you work in a place like that, which has got all those facilities and yeah, I do agree, Derby in early season can be very cold. It is a very, very open open ground isn't it to be honest it's not exactly sheltered in comparison to to other venues but from those early days then just before we get on to the chat about your debut and the highlights from your time at Derbyshire we've got to talk about that initial receiving of the contract because it is one of the most special days in any cricketer's journey isn't it to be honest it's the moment when the dream has finally been realized so in terms of your initial reaction to signing that piece of paper becoming a professional cricketer at Derbyshire. First and foremost, Ben, how did you react? And then similarly, how did your family react at the at the fact that finally, after all of those years, all of that blood, sweat, tears, all of that toil, that you'd finally achieved the ambition to become a professional cricketer? I honestly can't remember right now, but I remember I signed a summer contract just before I made my debuts, debuts, uh, against India that year. And I think I had to sign a contract to make sure I could play that game. And then I remember I signed my proper full-time one and Graham Welch um, invited my mum and dad to be there when I signed the contract as well. So he made it a real special thing for the family because obviously those guys give up their time, days off work, travelling, driving around the country. So he kind of made it special for them as well. Absolutely. And it is tremendously special, isn't it, to be honest, for everyone involved, obviously for yourself as the person who's achieved it. But as you mentioned, all of the, the efforts that your family have also put in, it's a reward, isn't it, for all of that, that toil over the years. And in terms of your debut, we've got to talk about your pro debut, Ben, because, again, it is one of the most memorable and, and special days of any cricketer's career. So in terms of stepping out onto that field and representing Derbyshire, for the very first time, what can you remember about your debut for the Falcons? Well, my actual debut wasn't a first-class game. It was just a, like a tour match versus India. And it's like something you've never done before. It's We walked out um, for the warm-up. I got told I was playing. We won the toss and batted. And I think I was that nervous, had back spasms all day. So I sat in the change room and felt like someone was poking me because I'd, I'd worked myself up that much. So luckily we batted up and we managed about all day and then turned up the next day right as rain. But, you know, it turned up some of the players playing were like giants of Indian cricket. They didn't just put the B team out. And they had like security walking around to the nets and like the weekend before I was playing club cricket. So it was, it was quite hard to get on the same level, if you know what I mean. But I thoroughly enjoyed that and, and 
did pretty well in the game and moved on from there. We certainly did because, funnily enough, in, in 2014, I know that's skipping a little bit ahead, to be honest, in terms of the timeline, but in 2014, you did make your pro debut, so your T20 Blast debut for Derbyshire up at Old Trafford. So aside from that India Tour game, and in fact, before I touch upon that debut, let's talk about that Tour game in a bit more detail. You mentioned the Giants of Indian Crickets. Who was playing in that match? Um, Dhoni played, Ashwin, Jadeja, Pajara, who we signed after that for the rest of the season. And then uh, Virat Kohli played as well. <laughs> Quite the start, isn't it? Yeah. Goodness me. Yeah, they are some absolute titans of Indian cricket. And talking of titans of world cricket, let's touch upon your T20 debut because you did take the wickets of a very, very big cricketer to get off the mark in T20 cricket, didn't you, Ben? So in terms of that game, what can you recall about walking onto that field? The field in question obviously being Emirates Old Trafford. It was the game against Lancashire. But what can you remember about that T20 Blast debut and, of course, your first wickets in a Falcon shirt? Um, the one thing that sticks out is where that kind of era, Lanks always used to play their T20s right on one side of the ground. So one side was where you could throw it underarm for six and the other side you'd need a good three hits to get it for six. And I can remember Josh, I was bowling at Josh Butler and he just hit it out to this about 400-yard boundary and he got caught right on the rope and that just like... Yeah, unfortunately, I got the short straw bowling to the short end. Um, so he had to bowl, so he hit it the furthest distance and he got caught right on the rope. So it'd have been six on any other ground. Yeah, but it, it comes back to that old adage, doesn't it? It doesn't matter how they come as a bowler. And it's something, it's a lesson that you need to learn very quickly. It doesn't matter if it's a 100-meter boundary or a 40-meter boundary. The important thing, it's a catch. It goes down in the <laughs> scorecard as a wicket next to your name. And... In terms of that moment, what was that like? I know, obviously, in terms of the game, ultimately a 35-run loss to Lanks in what was a very, very high-scoring affair. I think they scored about 225 runs, if I'm not mistaken, given that short boundary. But, you know, you've just got one of the most talented and one of the most prolific players in England and Wales. At this point, he's one of the most, you know, up-and-coming guns and prized prospects as well in the entire country. Was that quite special? to do that and, and claim Joss Butler as your maiden wicket? It was, yeah. I mean, all the family were there to watch as well. Um, my granddad used to go and watch Lancashire a lot. He's not too far from Stoke, him. Uh, my granddad and, and his mum were both members there. So then all the family came to watch me play there. It was That made it even more special. And then you get that wicket of someone that you know is going to progress on to be, or we didn't know he was going to be progressed to, as good as he is now, but you knew he'd be a very talented international cricketer. And then now you can still relate to that. Um, so well, he was my first wicket. So the story comes out every now and then. As it should, because it's a good story, isn't it? And it's a great start to your professional career. And in terms of that year, 2014 was tremendously special, wasn't it? Given the fact that you played in that tour match, obviously you had that T20 Blast debut. And in terms of your championship debut as well, we've got to touch upon this, Ben, because for Derbyshire, this was a massive result, wasn't it? Beating Surrey 
by eight wickets at the <coughs> Oval, which is no mean feat at all, as we've seen in recent years. The Oval really has become a citadel in first-class cricket. So in terms of that occasion, in terms of that game, what could you remember about that particular encounter against the Brown Caps? Um, I remember Harvey Hussain took 11 catches and it like equaled a world record. Um, and so my debut wasn't on anyone's radar that day because obviously that was his debut as well and took that many catches. But yeah, it was a special day. Uh, I got called in because Tony Palladino was had got a bad back. So I didn't know I was going to play until that morning and I'd been 12th man for the five games previous. So I had no family there or nothing. I got called in that morning and the game only lasted three days and as did my next game. So my first two games in championship cricket were only three-day games. So I thought it was quite easy to start with. I was going to say, yeah, that's that's quite the, the nice introduction, isn't it? To championship <laughs> yeah. cricket as opposed to, you know, like an innings defeat or playing on an absolute road and it going all the distance for four days and 600 plus being scored. It's <laughs> it's quite the start, isn't it? Yeah, the, ne- the next journey. time I played, the next time I played at the Oval, I stood in the field for 160 overs, and um, I can't remember. Two lads got two massive hundreds, and unfortunately, Sangakara only got 12. I wouldn't have minded fielding when he was knocking it around, but he only got 12. And we, uh, the captain asked me if I wanted to take the third new ball. But luckily, they just they, they declared just before it. <laughs> Goodness me, what a cricketer, Kumar Sangakare. I, I do miss watching him, regardless of the format, in particular in first-class and test cricket. There, there aren't many better left-handers, are there? I mean, obviously, in recent years, you can argue Sir Alistair Cook, and as a Warwickshire fan, I'll always argue for the Prince, Brian Charles Lara, but Sangakare was special, wasn't he? And yeah, that stint they had at Surrey was tremendously memorable, to, to say the least. And in terms of those those debuts, Ben, I know this is a very retrospective question in hindsight, but would you say that one of those debuts was your proudest moments in a Derbyshire shirt or did something surpass those in the years that followed? What would you say really was your highlight from your time at the East Midlands outfit? Ooh, um, I wouldn't say any day stands out. Like Every day I walked out onto the pitch, I was proud to, to have got to where I did. So it... I never let the highs get too highs and just kind of try to stay level. I mean, your debuts are always a proud day. Um, I remember we played a debut season in the Royal London. We got to the semi-final of that. We played Knots and they completely outpowered us that game. And then we got to a quarter-final of the T20 uh, against Hampshire and a 3D went but, uh, ballistic. They're quite proud days because you've got through those group stages. Obviously, the defeats, but yeah, I never let the highs get too high. So just took every day as like proud to be in that position that I got myself to. Well, I think that's a really nice answer to be honest, because it is something you should be very proud of, isn't it? The fact is, you've you've achieved the dream. So many people, thousands, if not millions of people worldwide, never get to become a professional cricketer. And yet you've lived it. So I think that's a lovely answer, to be honest, Ben. And yeah, it's it's a special sport, isn't it? It, it really is. And I think county cricket is tremendously special, given the history, given the heritage, the, the tradition associated with it. You mentioned beforehand about some of your members of, of your family, you know, supporting Lancashire and attending their games. There really is a family element 
to county cricket at times. So, yeah, I think that's a really, really wholesome and <laughs> very wonderful answer, to be honest. And in terms of just one performance I did want to touch upon, was one against Worcestershire at New Road, right? So it's where you took figures of, of four for 43. They were your career best figures in the list A format. So in terms of that game, <clears throat> what can you recall about that particular encounter? Because in terms of your individual performance, that has to be up there, surely, in, in terms of one of those highlights and one of your proudest moments in a Derbyshire shirt. Yeah, it was. If I remember rightly, it was the first game of, the Royal London that year. And I think I took a wicket in the first over and it was the first wicket of the competition. Um, and that year we we really tried to do well in white ball cricket. So we'd done a lot of pre-season stuff about how we're going to play the game, um, key point, key areas that we wanted to target. And then we went out and I think we won the game. I think you'll know better than me. Um but yeah, it was good to get off the mark. I bowled well up top and then, like we said, bowling at the end took a few wickets. So we we were a tight-knit unit that year in terms of the one day. We got a fielding coach in um, to help us and we, we really tried to knuckle down and work hard at the 50-over stuff that year, if I remember correctly. Well, it certainly paid off, didn't it? In particular in that, <laughs> that game at New Road because, yeah, you're spot on, Ben. You did win by seven wickets. Hamish Rutherford scoring a ton in the second innings as Zarbashan won with 11 balls to spare. But in terms of those four wickets, Tom Curdick-Admore, who funny enough today has been selected in the IPL, so again, pretty big wicket. Daryl Mitchell, the Worcestershire captain. Ben Cox, now of Leicestershire. And of course, Joe Leach, another icon down at New Road. So four excellent wickets, to say the least, and a very, very clinical performance by the Falcons of Derbyshire in that particular encounter. But... Ben, aside from the, the proud moments and the highlights, because unfortunately cricket is one of those sports, isn't it, where you do have tremendous peaks, but also very, very tremendous troughs. It's a cruel game at times. What would you say, aside from the proud moments, was your most difficult or toughest moment from your time in the East Midlands? Um, that's a good question because there's, there's quite a few. There's, obviously being released is, is tough. Um, and then I had like 12 months of trialling so that was quite a low period you, you don't know you know you spend every day and you're at the cricket you're training you know what's coming up and then it all gets taken away from you that's one of the low points um, it's tough to narrow down really I'll be honest well again yeah. that's quite a common answer because cricket is one of those sports isn't it it's all about riding the wave and as we mentioned beforehand, you do have these massive highs and quite pronounced lows as well. But you mentioned that release. And if you don't mind, Ben, I did just want to go into that in a little bit more detail because it's helpful, to be honest, for young cricketers who are also going through this process at the moment. First and foremost, when did you find out about your release from Derbyshire? How did you find out about that in in the first place? Uh, it was about... It wasn't long before Christmas. It was towards the end of that kind of, you've come back after Christmas, uh, you've done your kind of fitness stage of your pre-season and I found out from the PCA rep that the club wanted a meeting with me. Um, so I went to the meeting and basically said that, thanks for your time, but we're not going to 
honor your next year in your contract we're gonna release you now uh, and basically unfortunately i don't know what the process is like now because the pca have got involved and and are helping the the young lads out um with these processes but it was they basically backed you into a corner and made the decision for you um so yeah I accepted the deal that they offered and spent a full summer trialing which is pretty tough you've got i don't want this to sound um kind of negative but you don't have any income you're like funding yourself and yeah it's tough it's a lonely place you're playing with people you don't know which is quite tough as well you you have to really i'm not the most kind of social and like forthcoming person i find it hard in situations where i get like you're uncomfortable so you really have to throw yourself in the deep end and and kind of sink or swim at, at that point really it is and to be honest i think that's actually quite a good description of it at, at times it does feel like sink or swim and it is very cutthroat isn't it the the world of professional sports is brutal at times but the the great thing about cricket is that there are a lot of avenues that you can utilize right so for example with trialing or now there's like the ucce or what's pro- what was previously the the mccu scheme you've got the national counties you've got second 11 right there are pathways to get back into the game but after that initial release i imagine it is very very tough to be honest because something you you touched upon beforehand ben is the uncertainty so obviously uncertainty when it comes to income you're having to to self-fund all of that you've had your primary source of, of revenue taken away first and foremost and then you're thrown completely out of routine you have to return to what supposes quote-unquote normal life which for a lot of cricketers is very difficult all of a sudden you might have to find a part-time job just to fund this dream and get yourself back into the game obviously there's other factors which you need to consider in particular if you've got a family at that moment as well so it is a tremendously difficult period of any cricketer's life especially for those who've experienced it and in terms of the initial reaction I mean, you mentioned there about almost feeling backed into a corner, which is a horrible way for it to to transpire. But in terms of that initial reaction, Ben, how did you take the news of of that initial release? Um, not great. Um, it's tricky because you know you know that they don't want you there, so that's that's the best thing that they could do rather than you being there and um, and essentially lying to you um it's not great you, you you don't know what your next option is straight away and then you have to just slowly break it down right what do i do next and um, who can i speak to who who am i friendly with in the game and use your connections to well, any chance i can come down and have a bowl in the winter nets um and that did happen was going down to north Hants through the winter, played a lot of second team games in the summer and then managed to play a few first team games sporadically throughout the year as well for them. So fortunately fell back and got a contract there as well. Well, you did. And again, there was a light at the end of the tunnel in this particular circumstance. And I think you did very well, to be honest, Ben, to get back into the game. So you should be very, very proud of that. But in terms of that I suppose the the period of uncertainty when you didn't have a club and you're doing the trialing and 
almost were just away from that professional environment. What almost lit the fire inside to to keep this dream alive? Why did you continue trying to become a, a professional cricketer? I know that's quite a, a profound question, perhaps, but what was it inside you which almost motivated you to continue pursuing this particular aspiration? I mean, being a cricketer was something that I've always wanted to do, so that was obviously the underlying fire. And then kind of just proving the people who did, didn't think you were good enough wrong. Um, I really wanted to play the game against Derbyshire when Northampton did play against them, but unfortunately I was 12th man. Um, but just going out there and proving the doubt was wrong really was, was the motivation towards that. That's interesting then. So almost a case of, well, as you mentioned there, just going out and showing that, that you were good enough. And in this case, you were good enough to, to get the opportunity at Northamptonshire, a, a trip to Wantage Road, which is a lovely, lovely ground. Not quite as open as Derbyshire, is it? I mean, Cora, <laughs> no, but not quite. well, you've got all the houses around it, but it is a lovely ground. I, I love Wantage Road. Really is. If, if you haven't been to Wantage Road, any listeners out there who are thinking maybe on the fence, should I go to North Ants? Yes, absolutely. It's a hidden gem in the world of county cricket. But in terms of that opportunity, you mentioned there about being proactive, utilising your connections in the game itself, Ben. How did you manifest the opportunity at North Ants in the first place? Um, so I had an agent that kind of sorted that out. They'd, they'd obviously asked if anyone was available and he put my name forward and initially just went down to bowl in, in the winter and um, did that and come summer they uh, played pretty much every second team game that they had on offer as well and yeah did well in those games I got injured at one point they kind of looked after me a little bit there and gave me all the physio that I needed I, I even played as a batter so I was like there must be they must be interested if I'm playing as a batter. And then I think I made a debut for them about three weeks after. Um, yeah, and then it went from there. It certainly did. And I think this is quite an interesting thing to, to actually bring up about your time at North Ants. During your time with East Midlands County, you took your career best figures, which is very impressive, isn't it? Let's face it, in the first class arena, given that disappointment which you would have felt the previous winter, it's quite the comeback, isn't it? And in terms of the performance, we just have to talk about it because it was brilliant and an excellent win by North Ants at Wantage Road against Sussex. So in terms of that particular game, what can you remember about that performance first and foremost? And I suppose in terms of the wider encounter <coughs> itself, because that, that's quite the performance, isn't it? 5 of 48 from 14 overs. Should be very proud of that. Yeah, it was a good day. I mean, I felt like I bowled better at the day before, because um, I think it was another three-day game. I don't think it lasted that long. It's coming a common theme here, isn't it? But, um, yeah, I felt like I'd bought, I was in more rhythm the day before and things were going better. Um, but, yeah, I just managed to take the five wickets and that's how the career finished, unfortunately, as well. Well, we'll touch upon that in due course because, again, I'd love to know your thoughts and, and feelings surrounding that particular points of your career, Ben. But in, in terms of that game, in fact, I didn't even touch upon the two for 10 in the first inning. So in terms <laughs> of your, your overall match figures, very impressive, seven for 58 against Sussex. And in terms of those wickets, not to put you too much on the spot, but can you recall those seven wickets from that match? 
Um, I can remember a couple of them, and I can't remember the first two from the first innings. I can remember a couple of the uh, from the five from the second innings. Um, Luke Wells, uh, Rawlins, um, uh, what's his name? No, I'm stumped. Well, fair enough. The the, the keeper in question is Ben Brown, a, a podcast favourite here at TCCP. Gave us some great tidbits of information and yeah, some very profound teachings as well in our episode that we had with him. And in terms of the other wickets, funny enough, you got Luke Wells in the first innings as well. So you got oh, you got Luke you go. Wells out out twice. You also got Michael Burgess out twice, which is quite interesting as a Warwickshire fan because obviously he's now <laughs> at my county and. Yeah, in terms of one final bear and the final wickets from that particular performance, Ben, it was Danny Briggs. Danny Briggs, former England international. So, yeah, quite the, the five-wicket haul, to be honest, in that second innings. And as if that wasn't already enough, the, the cherry on top of the cake, 24 not out in North Ansey's first innings as well. So some runs with the bat too. But you mentioned there about that being your final game and almost the the closing chapter of your journey in professional cricket. So... In terms of that season, how do you reflect on that time spent at Wantage Road? Because I'm guessing from that description, it was almost a little bit bittersweet because you'd worked your way back into the game. But at the same time, that was also the, the year which you played your final game. Yeah, I mean, um, I did everything right throughout the summer there, I felt. And then I signed a deal in the winter and didn't have the greatest of winters and things ended there so um yeah it was a bit a little bit bittersweet I don't uh, if I could go back I'd change things but now I've moved on to a different career and I'm happy doing that now so obviously at the time it's quite um disappointing you've worked so hard and then things end again for the second time um I only have myself to blame for that really um but now I found something else that I like doing and and life continues, really, from, from cricket. Well, it does, and I think that's another important lesson, to be honest, because you, your playing days are only a very short span of your entire life. Obviously, there are players who have 15, 20-plus-year-long careers, but the vast majority... I mean, there was a stat in 2021, I think it was. Obviously, this took into account the, the short-term contracts during COVID, but the average county career lasts between one and a half to two years. So for anybody surpassing that, you're already beating out the average. It's a very, very short span in terms of your wider life. And just in, in terms of that last passage, Ben, I found that very interesting about in terms of that's that wanting to, to do things differently, right? Because reflection's an important thing, isn't it? To be honest, in, in wider life. In terms of that particular aspect of your time at North Ants, what would you go back and change? I know, again, that's quite a profound question but what would you do differently if you did have that time again just commit more really I was a little bit hesitant to fully commit because you don't want the rug taken from under your feet again so you still want to have that little bit of security um, somewhere else so I was still traveling from Derby which kind of took its toll a little bit um, down the M1 every morning before you go to training and then back after training um, five times a week is pretty tricky. So, yeah, probably just fully committing to it and and giving everything would, would be what I'd change. 
Well, that's fair enough. And again, thank you for the the openness there, to be honest, Ben, because it is difficult, of course, isn't it, in terms of, of looking back on that and just thinking what could be done differently. But I think it's also important to, to recognise the, the fact that you shouldn't have any regrets about that because it's life. You learn from it, don't you? And at the end of the day, it's worked out, hasn't it? You've got a brand new career, brand new profession, and yeah, you're doing well in life. So it's important to just appreciate that. But before we touch upon your time in the world of greenkeeping guns, we wrap up what's been a fascinating episode of the podcast. I've really enjoyed our chat, to be honest. In terms of that previous experience at Derbyshire, do you think that did influence your time at Northants then? Just based off of that last passage, do you think if things had worked out differently at the Falcons that maybe you could have committed a bit more to Northants? How do you reflect on on that particular aspect? Um, not necessarily. Maybe. Um, I think it was more of kind of spending you know, that year without any income and just literally the only money that was coming in really was expenses money for traveling. Um, it was quite hard to then commit any more financial future to somewhere else because you'd used up your financial backing, if you know what I mean. So would it have changed it? I don't know. Um, but the only thing I could have done differently was was work harder and, and fully commit. So that's all I can say, really. Absolutely. And that's fair enough, to be honest. As I said, I was just, I was just interested to, to hear your, your perspective on that. But I do think it's important to just, you know, acknowledge and reflect on those times as well, because you've landed on your feet in your Ben. And now you've got a career yeah. in the world of greenkeeping, which I did promise that we'd talk about. And yeah, I'm interested to to learn how on earth that journey materialised because we've spoken a lot in this podcast about cricket, county cricket, the likes of Northampton, Derbyshire, but now, of course, you are a greenkeeper at a very prestigious country club. So in terms of that journey, how did you go from being a, a seam bowler to becoming a greenkeeper? Because that's quite the unique <clears throat> journey, isn't it, into that career? It is, and it's um, it's something I'd always kind of had as a backup plan for when cricket finished um being outside is is more the kind of person that i am rather than an office and inside job so it was kind of the best of both worlds you're still involved in sport in a way and you're outside um so yeah i remember one pre-season with derby we had the infamous like marquee rather than going to some nice warm climate so they thought it was a good idea to stick a tent up on the square at Derby and I was actually um, speaking with the groundsman a lot about how the process works and and how the marquee works, how they heat it and all the intricate stuff and and that kind of started something uh, started something inside me that I really enjoyed and then uh, when Covid come along I literally spent most of my time at the cricket club looking after that it's the best a cricket club ever looked because there was no cricket on it at all. There's no dirty foot marks or anything. And then obviously needed a needed a new job um, during COVID. Um, and then towards the back end of COVID, I saw the advert for JCB's golf course as a greenkeeper there. And I knew one of the lads that worked there. So I asked him, I was like, look, I've done this before at the local cricket club. What are the chances? He's like, look, come and put yourself out there. We, we don't know what's going to happen. And 
here I am now, three years down the line as a greenkeeper. Well, it's a lovely route into the career, isn't it? And in terms of the, the job itself, it does sound so rewarding. Obviously, there's there's difficult elements as well, in particular, given the British weather. I'm guessing that does play a massive role in the job itself. But you mentioned about being outdoors. It's very much sort of a, a vocational career, isn't it? So it's one which you can take great joy and, and pleasure out of. And in terms of that journey then, Ben, is this quite recent for you? Because I've spoken to ground staff here on the podcast. So, for example, the likes of Meg Lake, Gloucestershire and Tom Cowley down at Hampshire. And their journeys have been a little bit more prolonged. So they've wanted to do it for a number of years. But in your case, is this something which has almost become a, a spur of the moment thing and something which has just spontaneously come about in recent years? Uh in terms of the actual job, yeah, the interest of it started from young. Uh, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I used to get left at the Creek Club with my dad while he was playing. And um, the groundsman at the time actually built, I was I was only small at this time, and he built me a little seat on the roller to help him in like, the intervals of the game. And, and that kind of started that kind of passion for groundsman's, the, the groundsman kind of work. And then... When cricket failed, I thought that's you know that's the job that I want to give a good go go at, and um, here we are at one of the uh, a golf course in the t- inside the top fifty in the UK. Yeah, it's paid off, hasn't it? Let's be honest, and <laughs> yeah, fair play, mate, fair play. That's all I'll say. Goodness me, it is a wonderful, wonderful job to have. And in terms of the the job itself, what do you say is your favourite aspect? Is it the the fact that you are outdoors? Is it the fact that's Realistically, you're responsible for the aesthetics of this beautiful venue. What is your favourite aspect of, of the world of, of greenkeeping itself? The being outdoors is a massive pulling factor. Um, obviously, it's currently the end of December, so at the minute it's not very pulling at all. But um, middle of summer, that one week that you might get a little bit of sun, is it's nice to be out there. You get your work done early in the morning so it's not too warm and then we're finished by kind of just after lunchtime and you get the day to yourself but then um we've had i've worked in three tournaments at jcb now and just that the rewarding factor at the end of it when all the players come and speak to you about the course and said like thanks for your efforts the course has been amazing that is a real real reward when you've finished um we had a legend we've had two legend store events um, and some of the legends that have played in it are people that I grew up watching golf and um, had Ernie Owls saying, like, look, the course is amazing. Um, I was rolling one of the greens in the, mo- in the morning and Alathabal was talking to me about the golf course and I was like, I watch you as a captain at Med- Medina and it's just, like, surreal and, and we get so up close and personal with the players uh, on those practice days and you know that they, they really are grateful for what you do goodness me that sounds absolutely surreal doesn't it i mean ernie else what a golfer absolutely oh. astonishing goodness gracious me that really does sound like an excellent experience and yeah to be honest ben it sounds like a very very nice job doesn't it and in terms of the transferable skills actually this is something which strangely enough i spoke with tom cowley on the podcast about because down at Hampshire they're right next to the golf course so obviously the ground staff at the Aegeus Bowl and the the golf course actually do transfer some ideas 
in terms of the skills and the ideas that you learn at your local club and and doing that ground staff work, have you been able to to translate those into the world of of greenkeeping and golf? Is there quite a lot of cooperation between the the two industries? Um, there is indeed, yeah. Like all the cultural practices they call it in greenkeeping, so are very similar. Um, obviously, in cricket, you want to thin the grass to make the, the pitch. Um, less sea movement whereas on the greens you want a good cover in the grass so they're very similar but also very different um, and I got asked the question the other week I did um, a thing for the PCA and Simon Kerrigan asked me why did he choose golf and not cricket and the honest answer is you haven't got to push covers on because <laughs> nobody likes doing that do they <laughs> Great answer. Also, Simon Kerrigan has, has beaten me to my next question because I was going to ask that. I was going to say, do, do you wish you would have gone into cricket? Because obviously, I mean, you, you, you're now a greenkeeper at a wonderful venue, but, you know, cricket's still there. You know, there's still the industry path into the world of cricket. Is that something which you would consider in the future or are you very much just honed and, and set on goal for the moment, Ben? How do you view the, the two and would you go into the world of cricket even with the presence of those covers? Um, I would, yeah. I mean, golf's a little bit different um, and light, and cricket's a little bit more intense for the an hour, and then you've got like six hour th- and that six hour break, and then you've got to start again after the game. So, I wouldn't say no to cricket. Did I need a break from the cricketing environment? I'd say so, yes. And that's why I did choose golf. That's the real reason uh, behind why I chose golf, just to go down a different avenue. And actually, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. I mean, it's been announced that we've got a live tour event next year, and that is going to be unbelievable. And to have that on my CV is going to be amazing. The news that John Rahm's just signed is like, well, it's really taken off. Um, so we've gone from Ernie Els now to John Rahm. So the golf course is progressing. Certainly sounds like it. And yeah, sounds like you've, you've made the right choice then in the end. And <laughs> just one final question about the, the world of greenkeeping, Ben. And apologies for those who aren't in, interested in the world of, of groundskeeping and greenkeeping. But honestly, in recent weeks, I, I've, I've become quite fascinated with it, to be honest, in particular after those previous chats. And with the likes of Tom and Meg, I spoke about their favourite pieces of equipment. And for a lot of cricket ground staff, it's always the mowers, right? There's all the different types of mowers, but they seem to absolutely adore their mowers. No mention of the trimble meters, no mention of the Clegg hammers, anything like that, which I'm guessing you probably don't use as much on, on a golf green. But in terms of your favourite piece of equipment in the industry, Ben, what do you say is your favourite toy and, and tool to use as a greenkeeper? Everyone likes mowing. Everyone likes putting those nice straight lines in. Um, but for me, all the tournaments, the last two tournaments we've done, I've rolled the greens. Um, it might be because I'm a little bit heavier than most people, so make them even faster. But I've thoroughly enjoyed that. You work in partnership with the with the guy that measures the speed of the greens. So if they're a little bit slow, you might have to roll them twice. So you feel like you play, play a little bit of a pivotal role in in that final setup of the golf course. Um, but yeah, we do use the Clegg, the Clegg meter to measure how firm the greens are. 
So if they're too firm, they might need a little bit of water to so that the ball isn't bouncing off them and they're not too fast. So um, that's mainly for tournament week because the tournament guys will want the green to be consistent throughout the week. So if they're a little bit softer, you'll need to roll them a bit more. And um, So all those bits of equipment do get used. But yeah, rolling is it's quite rewarding in the tournament week. Not many people like it because you're going sideways and it's a little bit confusing to use. But for me, I, I quite like it. It's quite peaceful. Fair play. I think I might have to, to set up a tally now in terms of mowing versus rolling, <laughs> see what all the, the different kinds of, of ground staff prefer. It is a very interesting almost debate within that community and that career path. But yeah, I've also learned something new there then. I didn't actually realise that you'd use a, a clay hammer in golf. So that's something which I come away from today's podcast having learned. So thank you for that tidbit of information, Ben. And just one final question before we, we wrap up the podcast by talking about the future. Just one final question about the aspects of greenkeeping, in particular for those aspiring greenkeepers and, of course, ground staff in the world of cricket. What advice would you have to give to people who want to go into this industry? Because it is quite a niche one, isn't it? Let's face it, in terms of the job itself, in terms of methods of, of getting into the industry. But for those who are interested in becoming a, a member of a county ground staff or indeed a, a greenkeeper, at a local golf course, what advice would you give them to put them on the right path in this particular career? It's a very good question because when I started the job and went for the interview at the job, I had no qualifications and no no courses to back what I've done before. So I went into this interview at JCB with the, with the boss and, and the deputy, the two big Scottish blokes. And what I do remember from the interview is that... Um, we can teach you to mow and all the practical skills, but we can't teach you to be the person that you are. So they interview you solely on the, the person that you are, and they saw good qualities from cricket in terms of your communication, obviously your timekeeping, and those kind of qualities that are transferable because they were planning on building a big team. So they need people that can work as a team. A lot of... <clears throat> Local golf courses have only got four, five, six blokes. We've got 31 at the minute. So you've got to work in, in a team and the communication is a massive a massive aspect to that. Uh, and they saw those qualities in me and I've started a college course now um, to actually gain some profit qualifications from, from it as well. So don't be afraid to throw yourself into the deep end with just applying for a job and I learned bits from helping out at my local cricket club and doing bits there and, and use those people <clears throat> at your cricket club or whatever sports club it is that do the ground just to bounce off them for some information. Absolutely. I think that's a wonderful piece of advice, to be honest, because if you do talk to, to local ground staff, whether that is, of course, at your local club or indeed at county level, you find that the people in the industry always want to talk about it because it is a little bit niche, but it's a very, very passionate community, isn't it? Let's face it, you've got to be a special kind of person to do this as a full-time job or even just voluntary, to be honest. It's very, very back-breaking stuff and at times very difficult work, but the rewards are there. It really is a fantastic and a very rewarding job as well. So 
really glad to hear that, Ben. And yeah, in terms of the future, I did just want to touch upon this because obviously we've spoken there about the potential to go into cricket or maybe even other sports like football and rugby in the future. But in terms of your future aspirations in this industry and of course in wider life, what are you looking to achieve heading into 2024 and the years beyond? Um, obviously, I'm looking forward to the Live Tour event and hoping that that goes well and we get some nice weather leading up to it and during the tournament so the the course can be at its absolute best. Last year, we had a bit of a damp squid towards the end with the last day being washed, completely washed out because we had absolute torrential rain. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. The work is kind of starting already for that now. There's planning for where the stands are going to be built and all sorts of media things that will be coming in and stands will start to being built in April. Um, so that's that's the next exciting point, the next kind of target. And then after that, I've got an idea of maybe going into the building of golf courses and, and kind of the golf course construction. That's a little avenue that I'd like to explore. Um, but I'm enjoying the greenkeeping. And like you say, if you do speak to people that do grounds work, they could speak for hours about it. And a lot of people would walk past and be like, what are they on about? And, um, but they will talk for hours about grass. <laughs> As well, my partner knows, and she just hates it now. At least it's a nice hobby, isn't it? Let's face it. It's a, it's a very, very rewarding hobby as well. Very niche. And I do get that because for some people, you're right, they probably look at it and they go, why, why, why do you care so much about grass? and the ground and you know compaction all that all those different factors but if you really do enjoy the industry it's special isn't it It, it's almost like cricket itself in some regards people look at cricket and go well why do you care so much about it you just do (laughs) you just do there's something special about it and something which can make you talk for hours on end so thank you for that that wonderful final segment to be honest ben it's been an absolute pleasure obviously wishing yourself all the very best of luck with that event and of course the rest of 2024 sounds like a very very exciting time not just in the world of greenkeeping but obviously in terms of course construction as well i don't think we've ever had that on the counter cricket podcast so yeah i'll be keeping a close eye on that and sounds like a very very exciting avenue to explore indeed but that does essentially bring us to an end to what's been an engrossing episode of the counter cricket podcast just before we say our final goodbyes for the recording ben do you have anything to to plug or promote? Any social media channels, websites, businesses, anything like that? Um, um, I'm sure you'll see me at some point on a green, hopefully not picking pint pots up off the green like when you watch it in America. Um, so, yeah, get follow Live Tour and JCB and then follow me on Instagram. Absolutely. And we'll leave the links to your social media in the podcast description below. So, folks, if you want to go and give Ben a follow, on his Instagram, you can, of course, find that in the podcast description. You can find that just down below, either on the website or indeed on any of the major podcast streaming platforms that you use. But that is essentially it from us two here at the Counter Cricket Podcast for today's episode. So each and every single one of you wonderful listeners out there, thank you ever so much for tuning in. And as always, guys, we'll see you on the next one. <laughs>